Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Molson Canadian presents Heavy Montreal. August 7th, 8th, and 9th, outdoors at Parche Entrepot. Featuring Slipknot, Faith No More, Corn, and Alexis on Fire. Three full days of rock and metal with Lamb of God, Iggy Pop, No FX, Billy Talent, and many more. Festival passes on sale now. For the full festival lineup, visit HeavyMontreal.com. Produced by Avenco. Hey, this is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. We are sponsored by Heavy Montreal tonight, a concert that's going to be going on in August of this year. I will be there. I hope to see you there. So many great bands, Slipknot, Lamb of God, Marky Ramone playing a set of the Ramones, which I cannot wait for, uh, Pentagram, Warrant, Lita Ford, the list goes on and on. So many great bands. A three-day event, please if you're going, let me know. We got to hang out. We got to have a beer while we're there. It's it's the premier heavy metal festival, really the only heavy metal, hard rock, punk rock festival in North America, in, at least in the Northeast, that I consider worth going to. And today's guest is Mr. Greg Renoff. Greg, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. You sent me an advanced copy of a book that you wrote that's coming out this October. It is Van Halen Rising, and the subtitle, I guess, underneath that is How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And I will tell you, I'm about 100 pages into the book right now, and not just saying this to kiss your ass. It's great, and it's it's a compelling story, which so many of these books I read, and I also enjoy books that, that don't really weave a story, uh, are just, but they're just facts, you know, thrown at you. And so I guess my first question before we start actually talking about Van Halen, how does one gather these facts, A, and then B, turn it into a story and tell a story? How, how did you get that skill? Well, um, I had the either the misfortune or the great fortune to uh, spend quite a bit of time going to, uh, to school. I did a, um, after I finished undergraduate, I did a master's in history and then a PhD in history. And so one of the things that you end up 
uh, learning in those programs is how to do extensive research. And so um, after I finished my PhD, I had already completed a dissertation and you sort of learn how to, to um, again, do this sort of research and how to tie these things all together. Um, so in terms of doing the research for the Van Halen book, um, one of the things I um, became interested in as a fan of Van Halen was that I really didn't think I knew a lot about the band's beginnings. And so when I would read um, interviews with Eddie Van Halen or I'd read interviews with David Lee Roth, there would be, you know, certain um, accounts of, of long periods of time of the band's history uh, told in a few sentences, which is I'm not really surprising. People, you know, tend to just want to tell their quick story and move on to the next point. Um, but I realized that Van Halen had been together since 1973 and they didn't become uh, a nationally known act until 1978. And so that's what really spurred me to want to write this book and to do the research. And, and um, in kind of getting that level of detail that you're talking about for the book, I, I started doing the research really in earnest for it in 2009. And so I obviously didn't work on it every single day between 2009 and 2015, but I um, steadily looked to uh, connect with people who had, for example, hired Van Halen to play backyard parties in Pasadena. So I ended up getting uh, to know quite a few locals, you know, people who would have been um, the same age as the Van Halen brothers or David Lee Roth in 1973, 1974, 1975, people who went to high school with them um, and knew right. these guys. And so... That was sort of the starting point, and I really, when I talked to um, folks who, as I said, had hired their uh, hired Van Halen to play backyard parties, where literally thousands of kids had shown up, police helicopters circling overhead, um, police would break these parties up in riot gear. At least in one one example, I realized there was a pretty compelling story to Van Halen's beginnings that no one I felt had really told in any level of, of right. detail. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's been books written about Van Halen, but it's they've never gone into detail, especially about the beginning right. period, as as you do here. But but how how in the world do you find somebody who hired Van Halen in 1974 sure. to play their their backyard? I mean, how 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 do you go about tracking that person down? How do you find out? the exact amount that the Van Halen brothers paid for some musical instrument gear in, you know, 1970. I mean, how do you find this stuff out? It's, it's crazy information and, and, and really, really detailed stuff that they probably don't even remember. Yeah. Part of it was, um, you know, it, it was just networking with people from Pasadena. So I wasn't as if I, um, on my first contact with someone from Pasadena found the person who had that backyard party. I ended up talking to um, a few guys who were, um, again, musicians, locals on the scene, and they said, hey, you should look look uh, to find this guy, Jack. Jack had hired um, Van Halen to play his backyard party in 1974. I, I discussed this in one of the chapters of the book. And so, you know, then after that introduction, I got to Jack. And then you get done with Jack and you say, hey, Jack, who else should I talk to? Oh, you should talk to my friend, Steve. Steve did X. And you, you um, begin to move move through these different um, networks of people. And Facebook actually made that a lot easier. I, I, I do um, definitely credit this, the ability to write this kind of book to living in a social media world where it was possible to find people a lot more easily than it would be, let's say, 30 years ago where you would have been combing through phone books and those types of things. Um, and so 
that was really the the way I did it. A lot of just word of mouth. And, and the other part of this was to build trust with people. Um, you know, c- certainly it's on first on first um, reflection, it's maybe kind of weird to have someone say, hey, I want to talk to you about a party you threw for Van Halen 40 years ago. Um, but when people learned and got to know that I was a historian and that I was serious about this and this was actually going to be something that was um, me as a fan and uh, someone who was always loved Van Halen and wanted to see done for the sake of preserving their history, right. you know, people were willing to open up and share memories and share actually um, quite a few rare pictures. Um, if you look through the book. Yeah, the pictures uh, are just incredible stuff of them playing parks and parties and, and really, you know, that early 70s look about them, the kind of we're in the early 70s, you know, still kind of that hippie vibe uh, yeah. going on. And you see that in the pictures. Let's let's talk about Pasadena, the town, mm-hmm. um, which is what like proper. It's like I don't know what you'd call it, Los Angeles proper. It's part of the city of Los Angeles, but it yeah. is a, a neighborhood or part of Los Angeles, right? And and I, I know Pasadena not only because of it being the hometown of one of my favorite bands, Van Halen, but it also, for example, is known for the arts and crafts style craftsman houses it is um where adam carolla does his show but let's talk about pasadena what what vibe was pasadena like in the late 60s early 70s was it a a, a blue collar part of la was it a rich part of la was it a divided part of la Mm -hmm. yeah i think the i think the latter i think the interesting thing about pasadena in the 1970s was a couple of things that were going on one thing that ended up happening that I really wanted to try to bring out in the book was that integrational busing or what was called at the time forced busing was done. And so um, in the 1970s or in the late 60s and early 70s, federal court systems were dealing with the fact that the school systems in the United States, many of them were supposed to integrate back going back to the 1950s of Brown versus Board of Education, didn't integrate. And so what ended up happening in Pasadena was that you ended up with kind of a black side of town and a white side of town to some extent. Um, and, and a su- student like David Lee Roth actually was bused across. He rode a school bus across town, not to his neighborhood high school where he would have gone to school, but he went to, into a school called John Muir High School. And one of the reasons why this is, I think, important to the story about this sort of divided Pasadena is that when Roth got to John Muir, he went to school with a lot of black students, a lot of Hispanic students. And so you'll hear David Lee Roth say, he just said it recently, all I listen to is dance music. And I remember as a kid hearing him talk about the Ohio players and about James Brown. And I always sort of assumed that, oh, David Lee Roth must be this headbanging guy and he must be just sort of uh, taking the piss. It must be a joke. But when you really realize that Roth really loved pop music and uh, black music in particular, it really is interesting to think about what that was like when he met the Van Halen brothers. The Van Halen brothers went to school on the other side of town. So um, there were two at, high schools in yeah, Pasadena. There were actually more than two, but yeah, there was two main ones. There was John Muir and Pasadena High. So the Van Halen, Van Halen so brothers. So Van Halen went to – or Roth went to John Muir. Right. right. And the the Van Halen brothers went to Pasadena High, these right. two ta- uh, high schools in the right. town of Pasadena. Right. And Roth, even though he was going to school with, <clears throat> maybe you know, blacks and Latinos, who at that time a lot of them were were you know from neighborhoods that weren't real wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, a rich kid, really. Yes. Right. 
Right, and that's another interesting aspect of the story. Pasadena was a place where um, you really had um, everything ranging from very, very wealthy people to real working class blue collar people. The Van Halen family, I think it's fair to say, were working class people. Um, the story goes that, I talk about this in the first chapter of the book, that um, the Van Halen's parents, Jan uh, Van Halen being the father, they came over from Holland in 1962. And when Jan arrives, um, he's a jazz musician and he quickly finds out that jazz music is not as popular in America at that time as it is in Europe. And so the, he, the way you write it in the book, it's almost a heartbreak, too, because yeah. he feel like he comes here with this big dream and, yeah. and this big hope, you know, the American dream. He's going to become this jazz musician and, and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. His career, and actually he had been um, his career was definitely on the rise in Europe. And so he comes. And, you know, I think he, he finds his niche eventually. He plays in um, a polka band and he does – they do weddings and these types of things. So, he, you know, he ends up, uh, as the 60s progresses, I think, working more as a musician. But when he first arrives, he doesn't speak any English. He doesn't have a car. And he's literally working as a, um, a dishwasher at a hospital. He's um, doing janitorial work. And so it's a, you know, it's a pretty rough go for the family in the first uh, months are there. Now, um, years are there. And then so even in the – early 1970s when they meet Roth, the Van Halen family is still not by no stretch of the imagination what we would call like upper middle class today. I mean, it's not like the three cars in the driveway, you know, big house. It was a, they lived in a very small house in Pasadena, um, two bedroom house with a, Eddie lived on the, um, the attached porch, which was on the back of the house. Uh, that was the room he slept in. And, nice. uh, and at the same time, Roth's father had been in school for a long time as a doctor and becomes extremely, wealthy actually and by the by 1975 1976 he's purchased um the house that roth lives in today which is a mansion i mean that's the bottom line it's a an italianate style mansion built in the 1920s wow um, so david lee roth lives in the house the, the same house that his father bought in the mid 70s correct right roth bought today. it from his father right like the mid to late 80s i believe he bought it from his father right right and it's Crazy. you know it was a i always wondered when I talk to people like Pete Angelus, who was uh, the lighting designer and then, of course, managed David Lee Roth's solo career, I always asked him, like, I, you know, I would love to have known what it was like when Eddie and Alex first showed up at that house. And uh, Pete had met um, David Lee Roth and Van Halen's long after that happened. But, you know, it must have been just, I mean, I can't even imagine where you um, you pull in that driveway and you see that house. Because it's, you know, it's it's not a home that you and I would live in any time in our lives, I'm sure. Right. Right. Now, did you travel to Pasadena to do research on, on the book? I did. I did. I spent um, maybe 10, 12 days out there. Um, one of the things I did was uh, ended up meeting with a bunch of, of people who were able to sort of share some research and information with me. I should say shared information with me that I used for my research. Um, I also, one thing I did is I went over to uh, Pasadena Community College, which is uh, the school that the Van Halen brothers and Dave and actually Michael Anthony all attended in the early 70s. And that was actually kind of helpful because there was some interesting stuff in the school newspaper there, like the college paper. And I was able to kind of uh, roll through those reels. It, it published once or twice a week, so it wasn't a ton of issues to look through, but look through it for those those years that they were there and found some interesting stuff. But yeah, I, I spent some time in Pasadena, did the uh, Sunset Strip tour. Of course, Gazzari's that Van Halen played is, is long gone. The Starwood, which was the infamous nightclub that Eddie Nash later uh, implicated in the Wonderland murders ran. That is gone, but uh, saw the whiskey and some of the other, you know, real uh, landmarks there. Cool. So let's, let's talk about Dave 
getting together with with the Van Halen brothers. One one cool quote you have in the book from uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Pew- Pusey is that um, right? Jim the Pusey, key, the, the keyboardist mm-hmm. in in Van Halen, uh, essentially, which was at that time called Mammoth. Uh, he says the truth is that Dave musically changed the Van Halens, and the Van Halens changed Dave. And you do a real good job of showing that in the book. Um, and and really, it was the perfect storm, in in my opinion, because you had these these different ideas, these different thoughts somehow coming together. And a lot of people in the beginning, a lot of the people who were fans of the Van Halen brothers, they didn't accept Dave, but it seems like Eddie and and possibly Alex early on realized that this guy was bringing something to the group that they just didn't have and and something that was special and something that was going to further the band. And, And it's almost appears that they, in the way you lay it out in the book, that they recognize this before their audience did. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's a, a true statement? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, um, I actually had one of Eddie's uh, friends from high school tell me, and that story's in the book, that um, you know, after Dave joined, there was a real, um, I'd say, pushback among the, 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 the fans of Mammoth. Now understand, we're talking about a high school band, right? We're not talking about like a, you know, it's not like uh, a big band where we're replacing their lead singer or getting a lead singer. But nonetheless, I mean, the the, the uh, Van Halen brothers had a following um, that was pretty, you know, pretty popular. They were a pretty popular local band in Pasadena. And when Roth joined, there was a lot of um, dissatisfaction with that because Roth didn't seem to fit with the rest of the group. Again, remember, he's coming from John Muir High School. Roth also dresses in a flashy sort of way. The um, The Van Halen brothers, you can actually see in the pictures in the book flannel shirts, jeans, desert boots, you know, kind of like very, very, almost like, you know, post-hippie clothing, right? They're sort of much more blue-collar dress and Roth's wearing like platform shoes at times and this types of things. Um, But that quote about changing Dave, uh, Dave changing the Van Halen and the Van Halen's changing Dave, I mean, I think, you know, there's um, these great quotes from Dave and his – autobiography where he talks about how he tried to sing Black Sabbath and he tried to sing Grand Funk. He tried to sing these other um, songs that the Van Halen's did. I mean, Van Halen's really liked the sort of heavy, what we would call today almost like acid rock, like heavy blues rock, Cactus, Grand Funk, Black Sabbath, Blood Rock, um, these types of uh, types of groups. And Dave didn't like that music at all. And so what you see over time is that Dave is able to get the Van Halen brothers to realize that if we don't start learning how to play some top 40, we're never going to get anywhere at all. We're going to be stuck in the backyards. We'll be playing in front of the same 50 people or 150 or 200 people. Um, we've always been playing in front of, but if we want to get a gig in a nightclub, we have to play music that people can dance to. And that was, that was something where he got those guys to bend over time. Um, one of the other things the keyboard has told me was that, you know, Dave sort of bided his time. He joined the group. He didn't push too hard at first because he knew the Van Halen brothers were stubborn, but slowly he got them to do things like um, James Brown. He got them to play Cold, Cold Sweat, Sweat by, yeah. by James Brown, which in, in retrospect, I mean, of course, I would love to hear a recording that. It would be, uh, you know, it would be amazing to hear the Van Halen brothers play Cold Sweat. But that was part of what Dave saw as, I think, bringing a little bit more flash, putting on a show. Those guys did not want to put on a show. And I mean that only that 
you know, I think they really came from the cream school of music, which was performance where you stand there, you play, and you just blow everybody's minds about how good you are. I mean, Eric Clapton right. didn't like jump around the stage, right? And that's what right. I think Eddie kind of adopted as his view. And you know, Dave, hey, let's move. Let's let's wear some flashier clothes. Let's put on a show. And and that was what Dave um, brought. Yeah, it makes it makes me wonder too. Just when you listen to those first six Van Halen records. Uh, I mean, especially the, the the first one. There's just such a such a groove and what what I would call a swing to the to the sound that you have to wonder if if that influence is you know that we hear in strictly an instrumental sense on on say the first Van Halen record. If that isn't something that was brought to the band by Roth and that you know the perfectionist musician that Eddie was and, and his brother was for that, for that uh, matter, you know, adopted and learned how to do because of Roth's influence. I mean, for example, I, I I always think like the breakdown and I'm the one, the, um, the doo-wop breakdown, that's, that's straight out of Roth's playbook. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the, definitely the, the, the harmonized background vocals was a Roth ingredient. I, I had people specifically tell me, in fact, one guy specifically tell me, Van Halen, meaning Mammoth or whatever, Van Halen before Roth joins, never did harmonies. After Roth joined, he started pushing those guys to start to do harmonies. And in fact, um, the bass player, um, Mark Stone, who was the uh, in the band before Michael Anthony, didn't particularly like to sing. And when the Van Halen brothers and Roth saw and heard Michael Anthony performing at Pasadena High School in 1974. They were already having some issues with Stone. Um, I think that really was the um, the thing that encouraged them more than anything else to get Anthony was that his vocals. You know, they they knew that you know, if you want to do these types of pop songs, um, 70s style pop songs, you have to be able to pull off um, some sort of harmony there. And those and those um, ingredients that Michael Anthony brought, as we all know, that's sort of a cliche now even, but that's that's one of the things he really brought was that incredible voice. Cool. And again, your book, Van Halen Rising, it comes out this October. And I want to keep talking to you about Van Halen, but just on the book, uh, so the Talking Metal listeners know, where where can they purchase this? Where can they find out about it? Yeah, it's, um, it's available at Amazon.com. Um, People can also, for pre-order, you can also go to uh, VanHalenRising.com. That's all one word. And uh, there's a pre-order link there as well. Um, you know, and it, it'll be available at all retailers, obviously, when the book comes out. I know also uh, Jeff at the Van Halen store is going to have a, a nice stock of, of books as well. And he always takes care of people. So um, if you want to swing by VanHalenStore.com, Jeff will definitely hook up anyone who's interested in a copy of the book. Cool. And the release date is still a number of months off, guys, October 2015. And Greg, I wanted to mention that why don't you come back on the show when for, you know, kind of a recap, if you will, when the book is actually released and we yeah, can talk I'm some def- more Van Halen. I would love to do that. And I think um, I, I think there's been a um, I know a, a people are wanting to read the book and I, I know it's been a long wait for people, but I, I really would promise and I, I uh, hope your testimonials and I would help people know it's going to be worth the wait. I really have put my heart and soul into the book and I really think it's going to uh, please people. Excellent. Right now let's get into a little Van Halen and we'll come back and talk more with Greg here on Talking Metal. This is Ice Cream Man off of the first Van Halen record. Dedicate one to the ladies. Summertime's a bad, need something to keep you cool. 
I know summertime's here, babe. Need something to keep you cool. Better look out now, though. Dave's got something for you. Tell you what it is. I'm your ice cream man. Stop me when I'm passing by. Oh, my, my, I'm your ice cream man. Stop me when I'm passing by. See, now all my flavors are guaranteed to satisfy. Hold on a second, baby. I got put my banana, Dixie cups, all flavors and push-ups too. I'm your ice cream man, baby. Stop me when I'm passing by. See, now all my flavors are guaranteed to satisfy. Hold on one more. Well, I'm usually passing by just about 11 o'clock. <laughs> I never stop. I usually passing by just around 11 o'clock. And if you let me cool you one time, you be my regular stop. All right, boys. I'm put my banana pixie cups. Oh, flavors and push up to just heard was Ice Cream Man. We are talking with Greg Renoff, the author of Van Halen Rising, a book that will be released in October of 2015. Greg, that song right there, Ice Cream Man, that was being performed live, according to your book. This is something I I never knew, by Dave as like in kind of a singer-songwriter form before he was even in Van Halen, correct? Yeah. um, One of the... um the people that got to talk for the book was a guy named uh, David Swantek. And uh, David Swantek is the brother of Stan Swantek. And anyone who saw the 2007 Van Halen tour might remember that when Dave did his little intro to Ice Cream Man, he talked about his friend Stan. Um, so Dave used to go over and hang out at the Swantek home in Pasadena. And one of the things he used to do was um, bring his guitar over and he would practice some of these songs. And then um, as he 
built up his confidence a little bit. So this is 1972, 73. Um, he ended up playing a little bit um, at the Ice House in Pasadena. Um, it was a little bit unclear whether Dave actually performed there regularly or he would just uh, failed his audition and did uh, one audition, but he definitely did uh, did do this. And he would he would pull out his guitar, and I know he'd play for girls and play for other people who would want to listen and do sort of, yeah, like a... Um, yeah, like I say, like a little bit of a James Taylor style, like man and his guitar type of singer songwriter stuff. Yeah, and Ice Cream Man is is a cover song, right? An uh, old blues song, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's another example of what what Van Halen brought to the table. That was always sort of Roth's, um, you know, Roth's calling card. I think as a as an entertainer and performer, and um, those guys definitely took it and they they made the end of that song absolutely smoke. But uh, the other thing I uh, point out in the book and I talked to Ted Templeman about this when I interviewed him is that, you know, um, Templeman for any doubts he had about Roth as a singer, he, he certainly trusted Roth enough to sell that song because that whole song is really Roth's vocal until the band comes in. That's the, that's the deal. And, uh, to me, uh, the great unsung hero of Van Halen one in many ways is, is David Lee Roth. I say that because Eddie's obvious guitar playing is obviously so lauded by everybody. I, I think that, uh, but Roth just established himself as such a great rock vocalist on that on that record. And again, we've we've all heard the back and forth about Dave as a live performer, this and that. But uh, you know, there, I don't think anyone can can take away what Dave put down on tape on that on that first Van Halen record. He just made himself uh, a star. Absolutely. And Ted Templeton. So this is somebody you were able to get in touch with and interview for the book, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Temple. Yeah. How old is he now? I mean, he's got because I know yeah. he worked on like Sinatra records and stuff. So yeah. he's got to be up there. I, I like would say 80? he's probably seventy. No, I don't think he's eighty. I think he's okay. probably about seventy. Um, his mind's super sharp. Um, he was another person who it took me a long time to find a way to get in touch with Ted Templeman, but um, once I did, I mean, that was really an incredible experience for me and an incredible um, asset towards making the book everything I wanted it right. to now, be. There's this story that, that we've heard repeated, and, and we heard it especially when uh, back in the late 80s when, when Roth was out of the band and there was a lot of uh, uh, animosity between the Van Halens and, and Roth. We, we heard this story that, oh, well, well, Ted Templeton wanted us to throw Roth out of the band uh, back when we were doing the first record, and he suggested that we bring in Sammy Hagar. Is this a true story? You know, the way they're telling it, it's not really true. Um, part of me wants to sort of, uh, you know, be, hedge my bets here and let people read the book. I, I will say that um, the way that the Van Halen brothers told the story, there's a grain of truth to the fact that Templeman considered that as an option. But, um, the Van Halen's never knew, and it was never something that was actually discussed or bandied about at all at Warner Brothers, if that makes sense. Yeah. The The interesting thing with Temple, uh, Ted Templeman, too, is like, I know your book is about the early years of Van Halen, but, you know, when, when, when Roth did leave Van Halen after the 1984 record and tour, um, so, so many of the Van Halen camp went went with him including ted templeman who did mm-hmm. the eat him and smile record mm-hmm. you know and 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 an album that i feel was was far better than what they were doing with 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 hagar at that time mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that that really was the uh the um the, a big tell i think that templeman went with rith roth I, I, it, um talking about 1984 
I had Ted Templeman tell me this stuff my, myself, but there's been stories published that there were real problems um, with the making of 1984. Um, you know, uh, Ted would come to 5150 and attempt to um, actually get out on the grounds where Eddie's studio is to work on the album, and Don and, and Eddie wouldn't let him in. Uh, you know, then eventually the gate would open, Ted would drive in, and Don would drive out the other gate with the master tapes. Um, you know, they'd gotten to the point where Eddie and, and Don Landy, who was the engineer on the record, had decided that they weren't going to let Templeman and to some extent Roth, I don't, I think, have a lot of input into how the album sounded. And that's um, in the wake of Diver Down. Uh, I think it's pretty well established that Eddie felt that uh, there were too many cover songs on the record and that he didn't really get a chance to uh, express his musical vision the way he would have wanted to. And so there was a lot of craziness at 5150 in the making of 1984. And so, again, I don't, uh, in the book, I don't discuss that. Um, the Where book does the book it, end? Where do you end the book? Yeah, the book like? ends with the, the conclusion of the 1978 tour and just a little bit about 1979. Um, the reason why I ended the book there was that it was already becoming so long that uh, I didn't feel like I could um, effectively put together the whole, um, the, you know, the whole Roth era, for example, without really short, giving a short shrift. Um, and so I really wanted to show how those guys made it, their big breakthrough, and really their their rise to uh, international fame. And that's where, by the book, ends in nineteen late nineteen seventy eight, early seventy nine. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, Eat 'Em and Smile, a far better record than 5150, in my opinion, and mm -hmm. an album that sounded closer to what Van Halen had done on those those first six records mm -hmm. than than 5150 mm -hmm. did, in my opinion. And I I was a fan of Hagar before he was in Van Halen. I even saw him in concert. So I you know I'm I'm not a Hagar hater by any means, but hands down, Eat 'Em and Smile, much better record. Uh, let's right now get into Light Up the Sky a song off of Van Halen 2. Sky. Light up! 
just heard was Light Up the Sky off of Van Halen 2. Be sure to check out the Van Halen Rising book that is coming out this October, which our, our guest Greg is uh, the author of. And Light Up the Sky, Greg, I recently um, got to uh, interview Billy Sheehan mm-hmm. and actually hang out with him the the, the whole day, which was, was just a blast. And when the camera, this was for VH1, and when the camera and the microphone were off, he would just, he knew, he recognized I was a big fan of the Eat em and Smile stuff. He told me that they rehearsed uh, Light Up the Sky for the Eat em and Smile tour, and they never did it live. Mm-hmm. That would have been amazing. Yeah, I know they rehearsed too in Roth's basement, and that's the same basement that the, uh, you know, where Van Halen rehearsed circa 76, 77. That's in the basement of the mansion. I know that's where those guys put together that album, which is just, you know, that must be, that's like the Smithsonian to me. I'd love to visit there. You know, Billy Sheehan's kind of an interesting guy. And again, your book only goes up to the end of uh, of the the first tour uh, after that first record. That is, he he um, had his band Talis, and they opened for Van Halen. And mm. he's recently uh, been been telling this story that he was asked numerous times mm-hmm. uh, to potentially join Van Halen. I, it's unclear to me how serious these offers were, if there were contracts dr- written up right. and and why he didn't actually uh, go through with it. He's told this story while well, he was such a big fan of Van Halen and Michael Anthony and you know, but it's a little vague on on what happened. But he had he jammed with the Van Halens, I think two or three times, two times uh, back. I I don't know. I'd have to go back and and see what he told me. But anyways, there were numerous offers back in the early days of Van Halen. When I say early days, I mean 1984 and before. Obviously, they've had issue. Nowadays, you have Van Halen together. With Wolfgang on bass, Michael is no longer a part of the picture. But mm-hmm. these issues with Michael Anthony seem to be really uh, deep. I mean, they go back a long time. Here we now know that potentially even in the late 70s, early 80s, they were asking Billy Sheehan and who who knows who else to maybe join the band. Um, what What's the issue with Michael Anthony? Why... And I, I actually think it has more to do with Eddie and Alex than it does Dave. And, you know, sure, Michael went out with Sammy Hagar, you know, and has done things, and they don't like that. That's the story Sammy tells in his book. But before Sammy was even in the picture, they had issues with Michael Anthony. What, what in your opinion, is their problem with Michael Anthony, even going back to those early days. I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that really um, I think reinforces what Sheehan says is that there was an interview that Eddie did with a uh, very esteemed rock journalist named Stephen Rosen. Um, Rosen, maybe like five years ago, published the f- complete interview that he had done with Eddie in 1981, and he had cut part of it out. And one, the part he had cut out in 1981 was about uh, Eddie talking about how Michael Anthony doesn't pull his weight, um, saying at least Roth pulls his own weight. Um, Michael has just bought a Porsche on my songwriting. I mean, that's literally what he said in the interview. And so I think that's probably part of it was that for whatever reason, Eddie felt very put upon that he had to come up with all the music um, while Dave was maybe writing the metal- melodies and writing the lyrics. 
and this was a lot of pressure on Eddie, and he maybe he felt that Michael, you know, just was 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 not participating in that. Now, I've never known Michael Anthony to be a songwriter anyway, and as we all know, but, but he had songwriting. I mean, I need to check this. Yeah, yeah, no, he did. Me, but he had a, a songwriting credit on every one of those songs. He right? did, he did, and that I think is was another thing. Um, that was a decision that's in the book as well. In Van Halen Rising, there was a decision made sometime. Um, right before they signed their record contract with Warner Brothers, the final, basically the final contract was to publish, do the publishing as a four-way split. Um, you know, that's something that probably ended up enriching Michael Anthony quite a bit. Um, I'm not someone who's completely savvy about how all of these contracts work, obviously, but that's a lot of money in um, in publishing royalties for those songs that, Eddie presumably could have got a larger cut if Michael didn't get a cut. So I think that was definitely a resentment that simmered in Eddie for years. Um, why that wasn't changed earlier, I don't know. I, there has been um, some remaking of that on the 1984 record, for example. I know Michael no longer appears as the as a songwriter on all of the re- all of the songs in the reissues of 1984. Um, I don't know. Specifically, I haven't seen all the reissues that have just come out with the, uh, the new Van Halen Live album, whether they, they've um, removed Michael's name from other other um, parts of the records, meaning there's been you know contracts that have been revised with Michael Anthony. But um, that was definitely something. Now, to the effect that Sheehan is a um, more of a virtuoso bass player, I don't know how that would have factored as well. It's kind of hard for me to imagine Eddie wanting to have a bass player like that. Um, in the band alongside him. Now his son does a lot more of that type of stuff today, but that's his kid. Right. right um, right. I don't know. I yeah. Mean, I mean, and, it's interesting. And some of the, you know, when I first saw Van Halen, I guess it was back in 2007 with Wolfgang, I thought, you know, his, his bass playing was pretty straight ahead. And, mm-hmm. and it was interesting when I did listen to some of those clips from the, the new live stuff and was, was impressed with his bass playing, doing some like, kind of crazy fills not really sticking to the record but he definitely has some chops he's definitely mm-hmm. uh become a, a decent player which i guess is expected when your dad's eddie van halen and your uncle's alex van halen but uh yeah interesting what is what is your opinion of the current version of van halen <laughs> yeah there's the there's the magic question that i gotta always get myself into trouble with um you know i it was something very special for me when i got to see the original Van Halen back in 1984. Um, I was lucky enough to have a kid who sat behind me in homeroom in high school in New Jersey when I was a sophomore uh, sell me a ticket to the Van Halen show that came through New Jersey that year um, in April. And that really changed my life in a lot of ways, but also made me such a huge Van Halen fan um, that it's hard for me to enjoy this lineup of the Van Halen is, has currently going out with um, in the same way I think I would enjoy it with Michael up there. Um, be that as may, I am fully aware of the fact that by all accounts, the only reason why Roth ever got back in the band in the first plan, uh, first place was that Wolfgang pushed his father, who was apparently in not a very good um, state of mind, a lot of substance abuse at the time, but kind of pushed him to think about where to go with the band after Sammy had left and that they should get Dave back. And to Wolfgang's credit, he was able to, I think, um, convince his father that that was the right thing to do. Uh, Of course, in retrospect, of course, Wolfgang becoming more of a player in the Van Halen 
musical household, so to speak, of course, was the nail in the coffin for Michael Anthony. Um, you know, so I've seen them now twice. I saw, but uh, I, I'm not someone who's going to go see multiple shows. I enjoy them every single time. I think Eddie is playing great, and it's really fun for me to see Dave and Eddie up there. But it, as someone who, you know, goes back a long way, it's it's hard for me to listen to the background vocals and not miss Michael and just sort of look over and not see him there. And that's that's not a knock on Wolfgang. It's just a matter of that's what I prefer. Right, right. Yeah, and it is it is definitely, to me, um, something that's missing that, you know, that that the bass playing aside, that that distinct high backing vocal, you know, that that we had through all those those classic records and live performances is is definitely missing and it's uh it's noticeable in 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 my opinion mm-hmm. for it's, sure yeah it just it's it's almost like tasting you know your mom's favorite chili recipe um and you know 10 years ago and then she's changed it and it's still your mom's chili recipe and you still like you still like it but you're like it just doesn't taste right and sort of that's what's it's like there's something missing and um you know i i picked up the the new, well, I shouldn't say the new chicken book, the first chicken foot record in the last year. I had not heard it. I picked it up and, you know, Michael still sounds like Michael. His bass playing is still great as far as I'm concerned. And so it's, you know, I, I don't think it's a matter of Michael couldn't deliver anymore. I mean, there's no question. He's still got his chops. He could still sing and he, you know, he still could be a real asset on stage. Yeah, absolutely. And where do you think Van Halen go at this point in, in, their career guys you know how old are they i mean approaching 60 right or are they 60 yet i'm not sure you know i think there's two factors at play part of me thinks that eddie and alex might want to sort of pack it in sooner rather than later um with dave just in general i just i just i just wonder how committed they are to doing van halen i just say that that they've made a tremendous amount of money. Um, you know, they're now playing um, sheds instead of arenas. What are they going to do to keep the magic going with Dave? They 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 had opportunities to make a new record with Dave, and they this for whatever reason there's been a lot of talk about that. They did not make a new record with Dave. I, does that mean they can't write songs with Dave? Does that mean they're incapable of writing new material? I don't I don't know honestly. Um, and to me, it's like where do you go from here? You know, Wolfgang has started doing a, uh, he has an album coming out. It's not really a solo record. I guess it's a, a Wolfgang band record that's coming out. Wow. That's um, interesting. I, I did not know that. Yeah. It's in, and so it was done, uh, at 15, is that with Martin. That's Mark Tremonti involved. In uh, that, I don't think Tremonti, the, right. but, um, Elvis, Bas- Elvis Basquette, right. Is the guy who produced the Tremonti record. I believe he's the one who produced it. They recorded 5150, um, Wolfgang and and maybe some of the guys from Tremonti I don't honestly don't remember off the top of my head and then um they just mixed it at or working on it at Sunset Sound and so that's going to come out and I just wonder if you know Eddie right now I would imagine has a tremendous revenue stream from his guitars and other things and while Alex certainly probably is as well off as his brother I just I just wonder where do you go with Roth I think that's the question right where do you, where do you go are you going to make a new record you know, Roth's voice has been been definitely a work in progress over this year. Um, I, I just yeah, don't what, know what happened. I mean, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, he sounded so good. I, I recognize mm-hmm. that was a number of years ago at that at this point. But uh, it seems like there's been a decline. And you know, I, I Eddie Trunk told me, oh well, you know, 
Roth's great voice was never great live, but it it, it was it, in my opinion, and and it was a lot better than than what it is at least on that last live record that that came out at, from the Tokyo Dome. Yeah, there's definitely been. I mean, I think one of the things that there's two things. I think one of the things that Roth had going for him back in 1979. Um, if he wanted to sort of play to the crowd, which he started to do definitely after 1980, 81, he definitely started playing more to the crowd and less focused on his vocals. He had Michael Anthony, right? I mean, when Michael Anthony sings the chorus, you're, you know, everything's going to sound good. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really wonder what's going on with Ross voice. I mean, you can't tell me that Eddie and Alex don't notice, you know, they notice, they may not say anything or express anything, but you know, they notice there's been, um, issues there. Um, I don't know. I mean, is there a medical, again, this is just my speculation. I don't have any inside information on this. Is there a medical issue? Is there just, is it just age or is Dave trying to sing in a manner he's just shouldn't try to sing in? Like, is he just trying to hit notes that he shouldn't try to hit? Um, I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I always would want to underscore the fact that Roth has always been someone who's been underestimated. Read, read the book I wrote that is consistent. Everyone always thought David Lee Roth was a weak, weak link in Van Halen. You know, great band, great guitar player, incredible drummer. So I'm talking like 1977, right? The singer is the weak link. Boy, the singer is just not as good. He's not Ian Gillen. You know, he's not Paul Rogers. He's not that type of great 70s singer, but Roth delivered. And so I always never want to count David Lee Roth out. But it's, again, it's where do you go? You, you, you know, another, another live album. You know, I don't think that's the answer. Are they going to record new music? It's, it's kind of hard for me to imagine that Eddie Van Halen really wants to truly take on almost a literally a, like a total nostalgia act where there's nothing new. Right. What what about like stuff that's in the vaults and like a lot of people said when they released this Tokyo Dome record, well, why didn't they just go back and release this show or that show that, you know, they have sitting around in the vaults? Uh, is there a lot of great stuff in the vaults? You know, I, I how do I say this diplomatically? I, I'm not sure that, um, there has been a tremendous amount of interest in really digging in the vaults up at 5150. Let me put it that way. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. I wrote this article that was, um, published on an, uh, a website called Q point about the, um, about the photo shoot that was done by helmet Newton, um, in 1980 for women and children first, there ended up being a lot of tension in the band about that. A lot of, um, resentment by Eddie and Alex that Dave was trying to steal the show basically for the artwork of the album, women and children first. And Van Halen fans certainly remember that ended up being that there was, um, these Norman C photos on the cover and the back of the album, these great pictures of the group together. And there was this poster that was done of, of David Lee Roth, um, put inside the book by Helmut Newton. When I talked to Norman Seif's assistant, um, Norman Seif's pretty elderly, and I was not able to get him on the phone, but I talked to his assistant. Norman Seif shot 16-millimeter film of all of his photo sessions. So, for example, when, um, you know, when uh, the Eagles would come in, he would take f- photographs, but he also had a film camera running that he would sort of show them posing and right. kind of go through the whole. And so um, I was able to actually pass the word to somebody who actually was doing some work up at 5150. Um, just coincidentally, I interviewed this guy. He was an old school Van Halen guy that goes, goes back to the club days. He ended up doing a little work for Eddie and was up there. Um, and he actually mentioned that to them and they seemed uninterested in looking for it. In other words, they were like, oh, we don't have that. Instead of saying, 
we should look for that. And so you can imagine, even though it might, you know, uh, it might not be as good as a live show. I think people would have gone crazy to see 30 minutes of. Yeah, Mike. I mean, look at Kiss. I mean, they they go right. after anything that was shot of them. They right. they you know they want they want to have ownership over everything. Right. So I mean, it's just uh, uh, you'd think this band with the history of of Van Halen, they'd they'd want to uh, embrace that history. Uh, I'll give you one more example. There was um you know there's a lot of talk about the uh, the three videos shot in Oakland, California in 1981, and the I think the truth probably is that the film footage. All that exists now is what actually we see in the, on on uh, YouTube. These three performance videos, but um, there was thirty two track, if I remember correctly, thirty two track recordings done. Um, in other words, like high quality multi track audio recordings done of the entire shows that were actually stored at one point at the record plant. I know this because, um, and anyone else can verify this themselves, that in nineteen eighty five there was an inventory done of the Van Halen archive was in the archives um, in Warner Brothers, basically. And uh, that that inventory ended up on eBay. And so there's copies of it kicking around the Internet. And so, um, you know, while there is no, probably is no, like, full video from the Fair Warning Tour that would be maybe easily put on DVD or Blu-ray, maybe. Um, I don't know for sure, but there certainly was a full-length, you know, uh, multi-track recording of Van Halen right. at the absolute peak of their powers. And so that's what I mean about I'm not sure those guys wanted to look very hard for that stuff. Now, does that right. come back to Michael Anthony? Maybe, right? Maybe right. that's right. like, oh, we, you know, I don't know. I they just hate him that much. I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, yeah. it's it's hard to, it's the other thing that Eddie I'm, talked about was um, maybe releasing the original Warner Brothers demo. And that right. was supposedly actually considered. So again, I Which kinda, is not the Gene Simmons demo, right? Correct. Correct. Right, right. So there's two sets of early demos. I know right. I have the the MP3s of them somewhere, but there's those Gene Simmons ones, and then there's the the Warner Brothers one. Were they called like "That's All, Folks" or something? Yeah, that was a name given to them yeah. to them later. I mean, they were done. It's interesting because they were done within months of each other. I'm talking less than, less than six months of each other, and you can really hear how Gene envisioned Van Halen. Um, in late 1976, and then how Ted Templeman in uh, the early part of 1977, how he sort of envisioned Van Halen or had put it on tape, and they're, they're very different. Yeah. Well, great stuff. Again, the book is Van Halen Rising. It's coming out in October. And Greg, in all seriousness, I, I could talk about Van Halen for another, I thought we were going to do 30 minutes. We're almost at an hour here. Um, I could talk another two hours with you. And it, having said that, we want to have you back on the on the show when the book is actually out and released for purchase we will link the amazon links through today's show notes on talkingmetal.com we're going to end with some van halen music that i want you to pick off of uh the a different kind of truth record but before we do that last question here for you greg is there any um knowledge if if the guys in van halen any of them, for that matter, you know, including Michael Anthony, Wolfgang, you know, whoever. Um, are, is there any knowledge that 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 they know you're doing this book, mm. and are they cool with it? Yeah. Um, well, I interviewed Michael, so I interviewed Michael Anthony um, for an hour, and so I was able to ask him a lot of really uh, key questions for it in the book. Um, I I don't know for sure if Eddie know. I believe that Eddie knows because I asked. Um, I asked for an interview request through Eddie's wife, Janie, who's his um, publicist, and she politely declined very quickly. I also sent a request to Dave 
um, and actually waited for a couple of weeks for an answer, but I got, got a no eventually. And I don't know whether that was just, uh, he was considering it or he just hadn't gotten around to the saying no. Um, and after I heard no from Eddie, I didn't bother trying Alex. I figured they were not going to, uh, just split their, uh, their vote on that one. Um, I, I, I think they know. Um, I don't know. I think when they see the book, I'm hoping they will appreciate the, uh, effort I put into really finding incredibly cool, rare photographs, um, and also actually to speak with people who um, sat in bedrooms with Eddie Van Halen and played guitar with him when he was learning how to play guitar and was a beginner, um, and w spoke to people who were really eyewitnesses of, to Van Halen's rise. I mean, to me, again, I'm a fan. It's uh, a celebration of America's greatest rock band, and that's what the book's about. One more question, then mm -hmm. I'll let you go for sure. Yeah. How did and and it's, you can summarize this? I know you do it in the introduction to the book, and you do a great job of it. But in in two minutes or less, uh, how did Van Halen save heavy metal? Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things that's really interesting when you look at the RIAA statistics um, and you look at the Billboard charts, a lot of the groups that you and I probably grew up on loving, um, ACDC. Uh, Scorpions, Judas Priest, sort of the foundational heavy metal groups of the 80s, had put records out around the time that Van Halen's record had come out. Um, and these albums didn't do particularly well. I mean, even Powerage, which is now considered to be an absolute classic, didn't light up the charts in America. Um, and for me, when you look at the type of um, bands that were actually popular um, in 1976, 77, 78, um, you look at Peter Frampton, you look at Boston, you look at um, even Foreigner, groups like that, even groups that were on the charts, they were not particularly heavy. And so to me, I, I, I try to make the case that I'm not trying to argue that Van Halen is, quote unquote, 100% a heavy metal band, because I know that's a debatable term and it's kind of a plastic term in the way people consider it. But in, when in 1978, they were considered. Yeah, right, you know, right, right. Yeah. Right, I'm not trying to get into the whole like, meta debate about that. But I, I would say that when you hear, you heard Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing and you heard David Lee Roth's vocal performance and you heard that heaviness, there was no question that they were bringing something to the table that was really not common at that time. The other thing I would say is that they, to me, they really invented what we would consider pop metal or glam metal. And I don't mean like the big hair and all that, that crap and the spandex. I mean more just the, the, um, the smooth background vocals, the big riffs. I mean, you look and listen to Dokken, listen to Kiss, listen to any of these groups from the eighties, and there's there is not a small amount of of imitation in places. Listen to band. those first two Ozzy records. I oh, mean, the, sure. the 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 Ozzy left. You know, after having Van Halen open for Sabbath, Ozzy left Sabbath and said, "I want to do something like them." You know, and and he 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 took Van Halen one that sound on Van Halen one, and he combined it with the Black Sabbath sound. And there you have the first two Aussie records. And so, you know, in, in that year, last thing I'll say is two of the most popular records of that year was going to be the uh, Saturday Night Live soundtrack. Um, Saturday in, Night Fever? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever, thank you. Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, um, the Grease soundtrack. I mean, these were the ones that were selling, you know, 20 million copies. And so for Van Halen to come into that musical environment with disco being so popular, uh, 50s revival, being so popular um, and to blow up the world of music like they did, it's it's pretty incredible. Because honestly, um, 
nobody, I think, outside of Warner Brothers headquarters gave Van Halen much of a chance. Ted Templeman believed in them, and I think because of that, people inside of Warner Brothers believed in them. But, um, you know, nobody thought this, like, what people really considered to be a dinosaur rock band, kind of like, you know, more like a rehash of, of Deep Purple, was going to do anything in 1978. It was punk and new wave, which was really seen to be the wave of the future. Right. Absolutely. Cool. Greg, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for this book. Like I said, I'm 100 pages into it. I will be through it in no time. And, and when it's out, there'll be, a, you know, there's a lot of stories in the book that we, we haven't touched upon. I want to hear all about Gene Simmons and, and uh, more about yeah. Ted Templeton and the first tour, the first album. So we, we definitely absolutely have to have you back on Talking Metal. Uh, how about this October when the book comes out? Perfect. Thanks again. And you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, at, at Greg Renoff. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll have that can. linked through the show notes on uh, TalkingMetal.com today. So go check that out. We'll have the link to the book on Amazon where you can pre-order it. And guys, do yourself a favor. This is a great book. Uh, I, I really mean it. It's a must-read for fans of hard rock and, and heavy metal and people who just love the history of it like I do. Thanks, Greg. Hey, thanks for your kind words. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for the time, Mark. Yeah, what are we going to play here? What can we play off of A Different Kind of Truth to take yeah, us play, out? Play Big River. That's one that they drew from their old demos. Cool. This is Big River, an old Van Halen song that was uh, recently released on A Different Kind of Truth, the uh, reunion record with Roth, if you will. Thanks for listening to Talking Metal, guys. Check out the show notes on TalkingMetal.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. And uh, thanks again, Greg. Here we hey, go. you're welcome. Little Van Halen. Come!